In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called, and his, disciple, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took those seven loaves, and having given them thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalamanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only, half, only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man to the hand, by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not enter, even enter the village. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, what do you, Who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? Thanks, Katie. Mark chapter 8. It's been really great to have all of you reading um, the text for us each week. And when you're not here, you can find what passage we're in and you can read it along with us. We'll be going through the book of Mark all the way into um, September. So I don't know if you've ever um, chatted with somebody, but oftentimes with a title comes a lot of assumptions about um, what that title means. And so for me, as a pastor, when I'm chit-chatting with people, whether it's on an airplane or at a coffee shop or just a random person that I run into and someone's like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. Suddenly they have all kinds of assumptions about what that means about me. Um, what I'm going to do, maybe I'm just going to bust out into a prayer right then. Like what I'm going to do or what things can be said or not said in front of me. It's rather comical. Or what I'm going to be like. Like the title, kind of with it, comes this set of assumptions. And oftentimes, I'm working really hard to dismantle them, to be honest. Because pastor um, doesn't always come with um, warm feelings, let's just say that, to a lot of people. And maybe that happens to you too. Maybe there's a title that is attached to you that you then have to kind of dismantle some of the assumptions that come when people hear either what you do or what you've, where you've come from or what you're about. And that happens today in this text. It's the first time in the book of Mark, other than the intro, where we hear a person refer to Jesus by his title. And we see how Jesus, having had that title referred to him, has to dismantle and the assumptions about what that will mean about him. And so he starts off, it's this kind of long narrative, and we start off with him feeding the 4,000. He's already fed 5,000 people in a subsequent chapter, and here he feeds 4,000. And after feeding, out of five loaves and a couple of fish, he feeds all these people and there's baskets left over, the Pharisees, um, religious people of the day, they come and they say, they come to test him, it says in the text. They come to test him and argue with him, and they say to him, um, give us a sign, which is totally ironic, right? Because he's just fed all these people with five loaves. They're asking Jesus to prove himself, to display his power to them. And Jesus says, I want do it. And he gets in a boat, and when, when he's on the boat, he refers to the Pharisees that he's just had this conversation with, and he says, beware. He tells the disciples that are on the boat with him, beware of the leaven of Herod and of the Pharisees. And because he uses the word leaven, the disciples are like, oh no, dude, we left the bread back there. We've only got one loaf. That's not going to do and Jesus is like, are you kidding me? 
You think I'm talking about bread right now? Like I can't feed us on this boat? And so he says, don't you understand? Like, are you not getting it? Like how many baskets were left over when we fed people the first time? And they're like 12. He's like, yeah, and how many baskets were left over just a few minutes ago? And they're like seven. And then he says to them, 8 and verse 21, he said to them, do you not understand? And there the question just hangs in the text. Do you not understand? And so I think when we read that, we have to ask ourselves, do we understand? Do we know what Jesus is talking about when he says, Warning, beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Having read it, do we understand what he's saying in this moment? So leaven, either yeast or sourdough, is hidden, right? It's hidden in the bread. Haley just gave me a loaf of bread this morning. I don't see the leaven in there. It's hidden. And in this scripture, whenever um, leaven is used, most often than not, it symbolizes corruption. And there's something about what the Pharisees and Herod are doing that has the capacity to infiltrate. It's kind of this subtle takeover that's happening. It has this hidden, corrupting influence on people, and that is what Jesus is telling the disciples to be aware of, warning. And so when we look at the Pharisees, Johnny just taught last week about what the Pharisees were doing and saying. Just the chapter before, chapter 7 and verse 8, this stands out to me. It says, you leave, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men, but it's been this long series of thoughts that Jesus is offering them because of their activity. The Pharisees have become preoccupied with Israel's identity and way of life. And they feel responsible. And in that responsibility, they have become anxious and fearful because they want to get it right. They are desperate to get it right in their sense of responsibility. And so sadly, they no longer have this mission for other people, but their mission has been set aside for themselves. And the actions that they continually live out are actions that are based on excluding and demanding and controlling. That's what their self-preservation ends up demonstrating it out through actions into the community. And again, it's out of a desire to be responsible and to do good. But their best intentions have become self-serving through self-preservation. And it's the self-preservation of a tradition and a cultural norm that has become burdensome. And this kind of authority, it shrinks. It shrinks because it is rooted in fear. And so Jesus says, beware. Beware of that. And then he also says, beware of Herod. 
And again, back in chapter 6, we've heard all about Herod. Historically, he was the person that wanted to be the sole king of the region, and he's petitioned Rome over and over and over again to make him so. But in the text itself, it shows us right after the feeding of the 5,000, the kind of person that Herod is, the kind of authority that he owns. And so he, as we read in chapter 6, he invites people over to a dinner party and he invites very particular kinds of people, prestigious and powerful people to a dinner party. And at that dinner party, um, there's some conflict because he's married his brother's wife. And his brother's wife, so his stepdaughter comes in and dance and she does this lovely dance and everybody is enthralled by her, so much so that um, Herod says to the woman, you can have up to half of my kingdom for doing such an epic dance. Right? Those of you who are dancers in the room, if someone said that to you, you'd be like, sweet. Yeah, so dope, I did a dance and now what? You have the kingdom? Yes, please. Right? Let's do it. Let's do that. Let's find that table to be at. This man is so full of his own self-importance that he can like throw away half of his kingdom to a girl that has danced in front of him and the prestigious people that he has brought into the room. But she actually calls his bluff and she's like, you know what I want? I'm going to ask my mother and this guy is creating a bit of conflict for us, so you know what I want? I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Thank you very much, Herod. And rather than in that moment, he understand what it is that he has done, and in humility, like maybe even humiliate himself in front of his guests, because it says in the text that he knows that John the Baptist is a good man. Like in that moment, what would you do? You'd be like, oh, sorry, sweetheart. That's a no. He doesn't do it. He is full of his own self-importance, so what does he do? He takes off John the Baptist's head and he puts it on a platter and he has it presented to her in front of all of his guests. It's his own, this whole situation is dripping with his own self-importance. This kind of authority consumes and it abuses And Jesus warns. So he warns his disciples both about the kind of authority that is held by the Pharisees and the kind of authority that he sees showing up in Herod. And he warns us too in this moment because we're not immune to these kind of influences today, are we? Where in our society are we self-preserving? Where we do things out of fear and anxiety? Where we become demanding and controlling, excluding? Where in our society do we champion self-importance over and above humility? Where are we as a community doing it? Where are you self-preserving? Where are you championing your own self-importance? 
Jesus is in a boat with those who are closest to him and he issues this warning. It's not about bread. It's about their own heart and their own well-being. He warns them. And he warns us along with them. And they get out of the boat. So they hear this warning and then he heals a blind man and then they're walking along to Caesarea Philippi and Jesus asks them a question. And he says, who do people say that I am? Friends? And um, they say, oh, some people think you're John the Baptist. Come back to life. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think that you are some of the prophets. Let's read it. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he, Jesus, strictly charged them not to tell anyone. So as they're walking along, people think and know that there is um, a fearlessness about Jesus and a powerfulness about Jesus because that is who these people were. John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets, they were fearless in speaking out against corruption. And this is who the contemporaries of Jesus are saying they think he is. And so then he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter makes a very bold declaration He says, you are the Christ. You are the king. That's a title. Peter gives him a title. You are the king. And it means that with that title comes ultimate power and authority. We know who you are, Jesus. We know the title that you hold. You are the Christ. You are the king. But Jesus dismantles perhaps what it is that they think the king will do. And he says this right after Peter gives him that title. He says, verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He made it obvious because there are a lot of things that Jesus says that do not seem that obvious to the disciples. So what does he do? He says it plainly. He's teaching them that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he says it straight as the line is straight. What does Peter do? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Jesus rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. So much happening here, right? This title is a reference to who Jesus is. He's the king. 
Peter has all kinds of assumptions about what that means. And the minute that Jesus starts to dismantle what he says that means with this plain language, Jesus decides to rebuke him. I mean, Peter decides to rebuke him. What Jesus says about himself in reference to that title king is so controversial to Peter that he takes him aside and gives him what for? Jesus, stop it. Rebuke is a strong word. This is forceful correction that Peter decides that he is going to give to Jesus. Forceful correction. You stop it with that language, Jesus. Suffer? Die? Are you kidding me? That's not what that title means. That's not what you're supposed to do. Peter scolds him. Jesus rebukes him right back. Jesus confronts the hidden influences that are making their way out of Peter. You don't know my ways, Peter. You don't know God's way. Your vision and sense of what is is shaped by rival kingdoms. Jesus is telling him that his way is different. His way is the way of the cross. And it is most beautifully described outside of this narrative in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus will give up his position in order to serve in order to give and in humility love. That is the form and shape that the authority of Jesus takes. It's the kind of yeast that leavens in the kingdom. It's not corrupt or coercive or consuming or protective. Jesus demonstrates that in his kingdom... And under his authority, he is the God who serves, and the God who gives, and the God who humbles himself. And that is where true power and authority lie. And authority can be scary. It can be scary to have. And it can be scary to be under. Because sometimes it's self-preserving. And other times it's abusive. The way that Herod was. And I want you to know that if you've ever experienced that, 
It is not the kind of authority that Jesus teaches or embodies. Jesus shows us that the truly powerful hold power very differently. That they have the capacity to give up position. And in live in humility and love for the sake of others. That's why Jesus rebukes Peter, because he doesn't have an imagination for that kind of authority. One that would give and serve and in humility, for the sake of others, move out of position. And as soon as he finishes rebuking Peter, he then calls the crowds, not just the disciples, but the crowds, he calls them all around him. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So he starts to to tell the crowds, and it's like this moment where he calls the crowds, like, as you follow me, you need to take up your cross to deny yourself and lose your life in order to save your life. And you're like, dude, Jesus, can you get back to the plain language? Because this doesn't feel very plain. You lose it, you get it, you save it, you don't have it. I don't know what you're talking about. The cross, what are we doing with the cross? Carrying it. But he is talking about the cross. He's just told his disciples, that that's the way that he will walk. And then he invites not only those closest to him, but the crowds to enter into this way of life. And he says, take up your cross and follow me. And it's important that we understand what a cross is. We have to be very clear about what it is and what it is not. And a cross isn't a reference to general human suffering. I think sometimes that's how this is often interpreted and talked about. But he's been healing the blind and and the woman that was bleeding. There's been a lot of things that Jesus has done to alleviate human suffering. So it can't be that he's talking here about a human burden of suffering. While that is a problem, it is not a cross to bear. He is not telling them that they just need to deal with human pain and suffering. The cross was something that happened to people who clashed with the ruling powers of society. In challenging those powers, whether with good motive or with ill motive, this is the penalty that came as a result of that challenge. And so he's saying that we will do likewise. We'll pick up our cross, he says, and follow. 
And so we also bear the burden of challenging the structures and systems and cultural norms that vie for our own self-preservation and self-importance. We bear that burden and we follow him. The burden of challenging those things that would call us into self-preservation or call us into a notion of self-importance. We bear that burden in order to follow his way as we would challenge those things. A commentator by the name of Ben Witherington put it this way as I was doing my reading this week. He says, If you clutch your life wholly to yourself, protecting it against all others, asserting your rights and privilege, privileges, you lose it because it isn't life any longer. If, however, you acknowledge that life is not yours by right, instead it is to be lived in love that the gospel story reveals, self-giving love, then you possess it wholly. There is nothing to lose then and everything to gain. Let's read it again. If you clutch your life wholly, protecting it against all others, asserting your rights and privileges, you lose it because it isn't life any longer. If, however, you acknowledge that life is not yours by right, instead it is to be lived in love that the gospel story reveals self-giving love, then you possess it wholly. That is what Jesus is saying here, that it is in his way that we receive life, that we are saved, that we are made whole. Like I said, it is scary to have power and it is scary to have none. Which is why the way of Jesus is such a gift because it saves whether we hold all the power or whether we have none. The way of Jesus is the same. To serve each other in love. The way is the same. Whether we hold the seat of power or whether we don't. It's a paradox. It's a paradox to do that. Because somehow it doesn't make sense to both challenge and serve and love. Like how is that humanly possible? I don't know if you've heard Beyonce's pretty new song, Brown Skin Girl. How many of you have heard it? If you haven't, it's worth listening to. It's a song that she sings with her little girl, Blue Ivy. And it talks about how beautiful the brown skin girl is. It's a stunning song that she's singing to her little girl. But it's also a challenge to a systemic narrative. That somehow the brown skinned girl isn't as beautiful as the other skinned girl. And so Beyonce sings this with her little girl as a way to infuse what is true and right into the heart of her little girl and at the same time challenge a systemic narrative. 
There's a woman by the name of Kata Kolowitz. She was one of the most um, um, well-known German artists of the 20th century. And she took um, slate pencils. Intentionally, she used slate. And she drew pictures of the working class in 20th century Germany. Because she was so grieved by how they were being treated by society. And so she took her slate pencil and she drew diagrams and pictures of the conditions in which they lived. She challenged what society felt was appropriate. And she did it with a slate pencil. And she is one of the most remembered artists of the 20th century in Germany. And then our contemporary Banksy, right? A graffiti artist that does something similar and lives in anonymity. Nobody knows who Banksy is. And there's a, a, a painting that he has that he did in Australia um, because you never know whether it's Banksy or not. You never know whether it's him that showed up, but people attribute this picture to him. And it's a picture of a homeless person with a sign. And it's on the side of this building. And the, above it says, keep your coins, I want change. Keep your coins, I want change. These artists have a creative imagination for how they can dismantle and disarm. And we as the church should have that too. A creative imagination for how we could dismantle and disarm things that are wrong. Powers and influences that are corrupt and do corrupting. And in challenging, how we challenge is as important as the fact that we do. That what we would always do would be done in humility and love. So again, how we challenge is as important as the challenging because how we challenge demonstrates that we walk the way of Jesus. And his way is always humility and love. Where do you see, I'll ask you again, where do you see systems and structures that are self-preserving? Where do you self-preserve? Where do you let fear and control and demand drive your behaviors? What kind of cultural norms that we live in champion self-importance? Where do you or do, where do you as a family champion your own self-importance at the cost of others? Jesus in this text asks us to beware. And then he reveals who he is. And then he calls us to himself. 
And he calls us to walk in his ways. And this table is a picture of that for us. To set aside the rival kingdoms, the rival ways of Jesus. And to be reminded again that this table calls us back to one who ultimately serves and who loves. There's a passage at the end of um, Matthew's, or in the middle of Matthew's gospel, Matthew in chapter 11, and it's this invitation by Jesus because these rival ways of living are exhausting. And he says, come to me, all of you who are weary, weary of self-preservation, weary of your own self-importance, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Take my way of life, my way of living upon you and learn from me. And he tells us that, learn from me for I am humble and gentle of heart. And you will find rest. His way is hard, but it makes us whole. It is salvific. It's the road to life. His way with him is the road to life. It's not a voice that will come that is condemning. And so if you hear that this morning, that's not the voice of Jesus. And your self-preservation and your self-importance, he is not condemning. And he doesn't need you to prove anything. Instead, he wants you to be the recipients of his own humility and love in order to be giving that same humility and love. So as you come to this table, you can come with a confession, you can come with a prayer, you can come with a gratitude, but know that you come to Jesus. the one who gives, the one who serves, and the one who loves. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you would warn us. You would warn us of the ways of the Pharisees and you would warn us of the ways of Herod. That those ways take their toll on us. that they keep us living in fear, fear that we're going to get it wrong, and if we get it wrong, too much is at stake. They keep us constricted in our own sense of self-importance, and all of those things are deeply wearying to us personally and also societally. And so, Jesus, we confess that we need to constantly be aware of how you reveal yourself to us, how you reveal a different way, a way that would set aside power in order to offer through humility a self-giving love and that that in and of itself would disrupt and dismantle other systems. And so I pray, Jesus, that we would... Um, let ourselves be confronted by 
the revelation of who you are and then by your words be invited into the way that you would ask us to walk. And so Spirit, we need your help to make that possible. That we would live as those who love in humility, as recipients of your love in humility. And so show us where we are self-preserving. Show us where we are self-important. Show us the ways that our communities live into that. And give us a creative imagination to call not only ourselves, but this city into a new way of being. Thank you that that's the mission that you've given us, Missio Dei. Spirit, help us follow you. Be aware of you. And to carry the burden, whatever it might be, whatever the cost would be, in order to be able to declare what is true about you. In Jesus' name, amen.